Chief, uh, if I were surrounded by six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. That's a sure way to kill him. If you don't, get yourself a club or a torch. Beat him or burn him. They go up pretty easy. Well, Chief McClellan, how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well, that's pretty hard to say. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow-moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Well, uh, in time, would you say you ought to be able to wrap this up in 24 hours? Well, we don't really know. We know we'll be into it most of the night, probably into the early morning. We're working our way toward Willard, and we'll team up with the National Guard over there, and then we'll be able to give a more definite view. Thank you very much, Chief McClellan. This is Bill Cardill, WIC TV 11 News. Welcome. It is October 27th, and thank you for listening to Film Jive's third annual Halloween special. My name is Zach Patanti, and I'm thrilled to introduce today's episode, which will explore the art of film music within the horror genre. I'll be joined by over 20 cinephiles who podcast and write about cinema. Each voice will provide a brief audio introduction to one of their favorite pieces of horror movie music. I'd like to preface this episode by expressing my sincere gratitude and appreciation to each and every guest that you'll hear from. The show would not be possible without their collaboration. Ghoulish News, an excerpt which concludes George A. Ramiro's original Night of the Living Dead, opened the show followed by The Equestrian Vortex, composed and performed by broadcast from the 2012 film Barbarian Sound Studio, directed by Peter Strickland. An excellent recent horror film, which in its conception was primarily influenced by giallo film scores of the 1960s and 70s by the likes of Ennio Morricone and Bruno Maderna. With its relationship to Italian cinema in mind, I'd like to introduce Riz Ortolani's main theme from the 1980 Italian film Cannibal Holocaust. I realize this uh, may not be the most aggressive track to initiate this cycle of music, but Ortolani's score is an example of the unusual dichotomy and versatility that frequently existed within Italian horror film scores. The film itself is infamous due to its influential structure that would later serve as a template for the found footage horror genre and its ferocious depiction of violence. However, Ortolani's score functions in deep contrast articulating a completely separate reality from the one on screen. It sonically paints the arrogant documentary crew's romantic illusions of grandeur. This ironic juxtaposition between image and sound achieves optimum effect, with Ortolani's main theme serving as a gentle entry into the sweat-drenched surroundings. Warm, melancholic chords soon become entwined with analog synthesizers as the piece reaches a grand crescendo with orchestral instrumentation. I hope you enjoy this piece and the rest of the show. Happy Halloween!
Robert Reinecke from the Still Watching the Skies podcast, which you find at wherethelongtailends.com. When I was very young, we used to have the Universal and Hammer film series cycle through our local syndicated station. I fell in love with both of them. In particular, I fell in love with Hammer's dark and colorful art direction, the terrific and stately direction from Terrence Fisher, and commanding presences of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Hammer's films have stuck with me to this very day, and a big part of the reason for it is the terrific scores from James Bernard. James Bernard used to have fun with his scores by making sure that you could sing along to the title of the film. I've selected perhaps James Bernard's score for Horror of Dracula, and if you listen closely, you can sing along to Dracula in the theme. Hope you enjoy. This is Steve. You might know me as the other half of the Steve and Andy Meet Batman podcast. And I was asked by Zach and Andy to talk about my favorite horror movie song. My favorite song comes from a 1980s era Scooby-Doo straight-to-VHS movie called Scooby-Doo Meets the Boo Brothers. I had rented this movie from a Kroger grocery store uh, video rental, and I still have it. I never returned it, and they shut down their video rental uh, section, so it's mine forever, I guess. But if you want to watch it, you can check it out on YouTube. Basically, the plot is Shaggy discovers that his uncle has left him a large country estate on a plantation, 
that's haunted. It's somewhere, I think, in, in Louisiana. And the thing is, this has real ghosts. The Boo Brothers are actual ghosts. And as a kid, this really freaked me out because normally uh, in the Scooby-Doo universe, the ghosts aren't real. And to be honest, it still freaks me out a little bit watching this movie. And uh, it's worth watching. It's just a fun Scooby-Doo movie. And I think the, the main theme really fits the tone of the movie very well. So check it out. Scooby-Doo meets the Boo Brothers, and keep jiving. Store. And I'm Ashley Avard, and we're from the blog Pussy Goes Grr. We're here to talk about the song I Never Dreamed Someone Like You Could Love Someone Like Me, composed by Pino Donaggio and sung by Katie Irving in Brian De Palma's Carrie. The song plays for four minutes of the movie during its infamous prom scene as Carrie talks to her date Tommy Ross, who then, in a long, twirling, low-angle shot, teaches her how to dance. The song's lyrics speak the fantasies of a lonely teenage girl which might feel a little too on the nose in this context if it weren't such a plausible pastiche of the softly sentimental music like that of the Carpenters popular in the mid-70s. At the same time, the song fits right in with the rest of Carrie's soundtrack. It echoes the main theme that plays over both the opening locker room sequence and the ending credits. Like all the other gentle cues in Donaggio's score, it contrasts with and thus intensifies the psycho-derived strings of the ensuing mayhem. But beyond its role in Carrie, this is really just a wonderful song. It's as kitschy as the glitter-glued stars that dangled from the gymnasium ceiling, and it's easy to picture Carrie herself listening to it, pining for Tommy when her mom's not home. Could it be that the lady is me? you look at me 
pictures the same. It goes so fast. I'm the girl with the strawberry hair in the photograph. So come on, let's dance. Let me have it while I have the chance. 'Cause there's another. To scream, but you can't. Terror grips every nerve in your body, and your heart is beating so fast it feels like your eardrums are going to burst. You swallow hard, and you realize there is nothing you can do but wait and squirm. Now, American International Pictures presents Squirm, the ultimate horror. Millions of writhing, seething creatures oozing out of the mire, shocked into a frenzy by 100,000 volts of electricity, driven by an uncontrollable urge to feed on human flesh. Squirm, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Joe, drag your foot, boy. Look what we got here. Hi, I'm Patrick Rapol, co-host of the Directors Club podcast. That's directorsclubpodcast.com. And if you're anything like me, you probably first knew of the 1962 film Carnival of Souls as the second movie of four on one of those cheapo DVDs you grab at Walgreens around Halloween for five bucks, you know, promising four horror classics. And the other three movies tended to be Night of the Living Dead, Last Man on Earth, and either Nosferatu or House on Haunted Hill. It always seemed like those two are switching places. And normally there's no truth in advertising, but all of those movies are actual horror classics, even if the DVDs themselves tend to look like garbage. Yet Carnival of Souls never seems to get the same respect as those other fine public domain horror films. The music in Carnival of Souls is no small part of what makes the movie such a classic. The plot concerns Mary, a church organist who survives a traumatic car crash only to be haunted by a ghoulish specter, played by director Herc Harvey, naturally, and a strange attraction to the Saltaire Pavilion in Salt Lake City, Utah, Now, at first, you think she's kind of cold and harsh, but no, there's something wrong with Mary, and her organ playing is the thing that clues us into it. Composer Gene Moore's music captures everything that's ethereal and strange and creepy about pipe organs as instruments, and without trying, Mary's trained hands pervert the gospel music she's playing into something stained with death. Carnival of Souls' enduring legacy, it could be attributed to the fact that it presents a lot of mysteries and its structure and motifs, but it actually answers very few of them. Only the film's unnerving score clues us into the horrifying truth that maybe Mary never survived that car crash at all. This is the main theme for Carnival of Souls that plays over the opening credits, and it instantly puts you in the mood for chilling horror. The sound of Gene Moore's organ, it's, it sounds like tides washing up against the banks of the river Styx.
this is Jay of the Dead, the host of Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. I want to thank the crew at Film Jive for giving me this opportunity to discuss one of my all-time favorite pieces of music from a horror movie. This tune is titled Song of Madman Mars from the 1982 slasher flick Madman, directed by the late Joe Giannone. Gary Sales wrote, produced, and arranged this song. He is also credited as the music director for the film, so the original songs of the soundtrack for Madman are all attributed to producer-story writer Gary Sales. But the soundtrack composer, meaning the film scorer, was Stephen Horlick, the guy who wrote the theme for Reading Rainbow. Steve Horlick is also credited with doing the electronic music for Madman, and you'll hear that such a keyboard figures prominently into Song of Madman Mars. So even though I would cite Gary Sales as the mastermind, and probably the singer behind Song of Madman Mars, I wouldn't be surprised if, as the music director, Sales commissioned Horlick to play the keyboard part. But the 1980 copyright for this song belongs to Gary Sales. Though the tuning sounds a little askew now from 440A, I think this song is written in A minor, though it could be a flat minor. And like many great tunes, Song of Madman Mars consists of only three chords, A minor, G, and D minor. Song of Madman Mars is essentially a folk anthem that celebrates the titular slasher killer of the film, the Madman Mars, who was an angry farmer that massacred his family, was ostensibly lynched by a mob, but seems to still haunt the woods near his homestead, killing anyone who speaks his name above a whisper. So after watching the rampage of Madman Mars, at the end of the film, around about 1 hour and 26 minutes, as the end crawl credits roll, you'll hear the song of Madman Mars. It only runs about 2 minutes and 10 seconds, and there's only one verse of lyrics followed by instrumental keyboard music. However, at the opening of this film, actor Tony Fish gives a great a cappella performance around a campfire of a similar tune called Song of the Fifth Wind, also written by Gary Sales. And even though it's a different song, it's in the same key with essentially the same chord progression and a very similar melody. And the lyrics seem to be the rest of the Madman Mars tale. So as a musician myself, I like to combine the two songs into one great madman folk anthem around a campfire. And now, without further delay, enjoy Song of Madman Mars by Gary Sales. Lore of the campfire, telling of his horror, lost in the woods with the madman and the stars, don't Tales. Heed if you call him the legend lives Beware the madman Mars The legend lives Beware the madman Mars
it going, film drivers? My name is Thomas Wishloff from the Big Kuhnenberger Podcast, the Genre Conversation Podcast, and Sunset Rising Productions. Uh, you may remember me on this podcast from the time I showed up to talk to Zach about Snowpiercer and kept commenting on how fat the polar bear looked. Couldn't let that one go. Uh, <laughs> either way, my song is The Ship of Doom from Nosferatu, composed by originally by Hans Erdmann, potentially by James Bernard. It's hard to tell because much of the original score has been lost for the original Nosferatu. So the reason I chose this is two reasons. One, I was the last person to submit my audio. So when that happens, a lot of the good ones are already taken, unfortunately. And two, I actually do have a funny story that connects to Nosferatu. Like many of my original great screenings within cinema, uh, they came in a film studies class. And so uh, for my film studies class in grade 10, I watched Nosferatu and... I love the film, to, to be honest, I love this film, it's great. My film studies class was a very interesting mix because there was kind of, there were cinephiles, people like myself, like uh, my friend Hussein, who I podcasted on the Big Kuhnenberger podcast with, that really did enjoy cinema and were very interested in silent films. And then there was the other half of the group that was like here because I thought I was watching TV. And it's, it's very much like any high school film studies class. And so we're watching Nosferatu. At one point, Count Orlock is coming out of a ship, and he terrorizes the ship, blah, 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 blah. That's where this comes in. And it's just kind of him wandering around the ship for a couple minutes, and it moves very slowly compared to a film from today. And one boy in the front row screams, hurry up and fucking move already! And it was really funny because we had this great uh, teacher who was very uh, lax, and we all had a laugh about it. And then a week later, we watched the, uh, Gore Verbinski's The Ring, and that's a very much a film that is built towards a younger audience it goes back and cuts back to flashbacks a lot and doesn't force you to remember what very much and you don't have to really watch like an active viewer like you would with Nosferatu and so that's kind of always something that stuck with me it's one of those weird audience what audience you're watching the film with moments and I hope you do enjoy the ship of doom and this Halloween keep on driving
this is Marshall Hicks, one half of the Boys and Ghouls podcast duo. And the tune I'd like to share is Harlem Nocturne by the Viscounts, as it is used in the 1983 movie Christine. Christine, directed by John Carpenter, based on the Stephen King book, is about a dorky teenager who comes under the influence of an evil car, a 1958 Plymouth Fury. The movie has a great soundtrack, as Christine, which is the name of the car, all Christine's radio seems to play are oldies from the 50s and 60s. Something we've discussed on Boys and Ghouls is how fairly innocuous music from the past can just sound really creepy after it's aged, and especially after it's been used in a horror movie. But Harlem Nocturne, which was adapted from a jazz standard and became the only hit for the Viscounts, is already a haunting and sort of darkly sexy instrumental. And it's perfectly used in Christine, as the evil car, which has been smashed and vandalized, repairs and reshapes itself in front of Arnie, the teenage dork played by Keith Gordon, who, after this scene, Arnie is just completely under Christine's spell. Though it's not hard to figure out how the effects were done, they just crushed a car and then played it backwards. Between the photography and Keith Gordon's acting, and the use of the Viscount's version of Harlem Nocturne, it's a completely spooky and very effective scene. of seven corpses is more than a fear you can't explain, a fate you can't prevent, a death you can't escape. 
The House of Seven Corpses holds a deadly secret. You must see it to believe it. There are eight graves, seven bodies, one killer, and he's already dead. International Amusement Corporation presents The House of Seven Corpses. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Death waits in the House of Seven Corpses. Hi, this is Regina. I write Consistent Panda Bear Shape, a blog about fat people in cinema under my pen name, Tesseract. You can find it at pandabearshape.wordpress.com. Church choirs were a big part of my childhood, either sitting in the choir loft with my grandmother or my father at their respective churches, or singing in one myself. I haven't considered myself a Christian since high school, but when I'm visiting home, I still join my family in the choir loft. I have a lingering fondness for hymns. The lyrics are uplifting, removed from the uncomfortable beliefs and history of the Catholic Church, and being able to lose myself in the music and join the congregation in song allows me to forget, for a few minutes, the isolation of being not truly part of that community. I've proven to myself on many a Sunday that it's not difficult to hide what's in your heart and just blend in with everyone else. These factors heightened the amount of distress and cognitive dissonance I felt hearing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, written by Anthony J. Showalter, as sung by Robert Mitchum in Charles Lawton's film Night of the Hunter. Mitchum's character, Powell, presents himself as a man of God and is constantly singing this song to make his presence known. The song is slow and gentle, almost soporific. Most of the characters in the film are lulled into seeing it as a marker of righteousness, but for the two children that Powell is stalking, the song is a harbinger of doom. They are anything but safe and secure. The song may get stuck in your head, but what really lingers is the knowledge that a comforting melody and inspirational lyrics can be used with any intention, even to intimidate and manipulate. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. What a joy divine Leaning on the everlasting arms What a blessedness What a peace is mine Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning, leaning on Jesus Leaning on Jesus Safe and secure from all alarms. Lean on Jesus, lean on Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. Shame on you, Ruby. Mooning around the house after that mad dog of a man. Mr. Evans. 
Ruby, go get the children out of bed and bring them down here. Women are such germ fools. hard world for little things. Hello, this is Nick, part-time contributor to Film Jive, and uh, I'm here today with to bring you some of my horror soundtrack thoughts. So, uh, music I think has always been had an incredible power in the horror genre. I remember being terrified just hearing the uh, intro to Are You Afraid of the Dark, the TV show that used to scare me when that came on. Uh, I think as I grew up, uh, that then sort of got upgraded to the X-Files. I used to find that intro very, very creepy. When I turn my attention towards films, there's a couple that I wanted to mention that I think have had a big impact on my sort of film-going life. Um, there are classics such as Cape Fear. I love the striking brass sounds you get at the start of that song. Uh, suddenly turns into tense strings. That's certainly a classic um, that I'm a fan of. John Carpenter's always had some interesting music in his films. Halloween would be a classic choice. The Fog, personal favourite of mine. Both have got excellent, excellent music in them. More modern films, I think something like Sleepy Hollow is actually a much overlooked soundtrack. While Danny Elfman, I think, is a much maligned uh, composer, I do think he's got a lot of... Um, great scores over the years uh, always a bit creepy but I think Sleepy Hollow whilst the film not fabulous uh, I think that soundtrack does have some real evil in there it's very foreboding and I think that's the first time Danny Elfman was allowed to really just go really go for it in terms of horror again a modern film that I think has got a great soundtrack it would be Saw um, I, I am quite a fan of the first film I'll admit that um, those sequels really lost the plot but that first film, on its own, I think is an excellent horror film. And the, the music to it would be probably be some of the best modern horror music I can think of. Enough uh, going on about it. My real pick for best horror soundtrack would be Nightmare on Elm Street by Charles Bernstein. Uh, one of the first real horror films that I saw when I was younger. And the theme had a big part to making a big impression on me. I think that theme incorporates the dreamlike quality that of course is relevant in the film when i hear that music it's hard not to feel a sense of dread that something's near if the lights are down i think it will creep me out quite a bit it has some pretty unusual noises in that song there to keep you on edge it's got some ethereal noises some electronic noises some strings it's quite an unusual piece of music with a variety of instruments um, and it scares me even today when i hear it
I'm CJ Lines. I write about films on denofgeek.com, and I've written a couple of horror books too, which you can find out more information on from cjlines.com. My choice of music is a song called Destination Understanding from Island of Death. It was composed and performed by Anikos Lavranos, and not a lot is known about him. He appears to have been a Greek jazz folk musician, mostly active in the 60s, and somehow he ended up scoring and providing songs for this incredibly strange film. Made in 1975, Island of Death was the debut feature of Nico Mastarakis, whose original intention was to create a low-budget Greek rip-off of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He decided that audiences craved violence and depravity, and that delivering both these things in spades was the easiest way to get funding. So he wrote the script in under a week and shot the film in pretty much the same time, hoping it would sell internationally and lead to better things. He had no idea that it could or would ever become the cult favourite that it has today. But it's hard to know where to start describing just how insane Island of Death is. There's not much plot. It's, it's basically just a young couple on holiday in Mykonos and a catalogue of what they get up to. You know, there's a little bit of sightseeing, some local wine tasting, your usual holiday stuff. Goat sex, golden showers, buggery, burying people in lime and farting on them, crucifixion, decapitation, miscellaneous combinations of rape and stabbing. Standard stuff. So like a perverted 1970s Mickey and Mallory, Christopher and Celia rampage across the island, with Bob Belling and Jane Lyle providing two admirably uninhibited performances under the feverish watch of Mastarakis's bulging fisheye lens. The film's atmosphere is unique. Not only is it loaded with high-camp, almost John Waters-style dialogue, but the beautiful scenery of Sunkist Mykonos adds a peculiar sheen to the litany of perversions. The main attraction, however, is the music. I'm not sure how Mastarakis and Lavranos came to collaborate, but on paper there could scarcely be a less appropriate soundtrack to this mayhem than blissed-out trippy jazz folk. Yet somehow it works, with Destination Understanding being the main theme that keeps repeating throughout the film. Thanks to its catchy and insistent refrain, it's often known as the Get the Sword song, and I chose this because it's just one of the weirdest things you'll ever hear. In fact, it's what many viewers remember most about the film, which is some achievement considering how outlandish the rest of it is. So kick back and enjoy this with a bottle of ouzo and your favourite goat. But be ready, you may find yourself with an urge to get the sword. Mother, I see the wonders of the day. Millions of people left like clay. Millions of whispers saying, I'm dying. Mother, I see the wonders of the day Millions of people left like clay Millions of whispers saying I'm dying I see the earth move under my feet The giant killers made of concrete I shout I'm happy and I'm lying Desperation, understanding, destination isn't ending Desperation, understanding, destination isn't ending Get the sword, 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 get the sword 
truth was born in thousand meanings And I was made from evil spinnings Why Jesus said, look, I'm flying There is a pocket in my hole To save the raindrops for the fall that means I'm rich cause I'm crying Desperation, understanding, destination is impending Desperation, understanding, destination is impending Get the sword, 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 get the sword. <laughs> Ask anyone who was brave enough to see Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th and they will tell you they were terrified over and over and over and over. The 12th, the 13th, Friday the 13th. We dare you to see this film all over London and in the West End. Your fright day will be the day you're brave enough to see Friday the 13th. Certificate X. Hey there, Film Jive listeners. This is Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast. My chosen music for our favorite horror score is Friday the 13th, Part 2, by Harry Manfredini. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, the whole movie soundtrack is pretty great, and it's roughly the same, but this particular track called Ragtop and Running Ragged kind of exemplifies the in- entire score in just a few minutes. Vocals have always been in a lot of horror scores before, but they're usually like choral or operatic in nature. Um, not that I'm a scholar of movie scores or anything, especially not in the horror genre, but this is the first time I recall the use of voices to sort of make sound effects within the score. I remember sneaking downstairs in the middle of the night when I was a kid, like pretty young, six, seven, eight. I'd flip on Showtime or HBO, and something like this would come on and give me nightmares for nights on end. But the choo choo choo, kill, kill. That scared the shit out of me as a kid, and I still think it's pretty effective. Maybe it's a little campy, but in my nostalgic brain, I think it's pretty unique and scary and interesting. And I don't know why I I looked through the YouTube archives from Friday the 13th Part 1, that score, same, same composer, and I didn't find any of that elements. It was a little more traditional score music in that movie. So it wasn't until Part 2 that Manfredini introduced the echo of that sound effects he also echoes the strings a lot too um so there's a lot of like violin just ripping like a like that just scraping horrific sound um it uses a lot of traditional horror score elements too like kind of reminiscent of bernard herman in hitchcock psycho um with sort of the adrenaline fast-paced high high strings with a lot of Um, angry cello and bass underneath it but um, the fact that the strings in this score sort of bend and just scream up an opt kind of an octave really adds to the craziness and sort of horrific nature of all the on-screen visuals so yeah uh, Friday the 13th part 2 is uh, for me a milestone in horror score cinema
Hello, my name is Jessica, and I run a blog called The Velvet Café. This is my own little corner of the web where I think aloud about new movies. If you ever want to come visit, and if you can put up with my Swedish accent, I'll be happy to chat with you over a virtual drink. You'll find me at thevelvetcafe.com. When I was asked to talk about a horror music score, the first thing that came to my mind was the music boxes. You know, the ones where children keep the treasures, uh, the ones that play a little song when you open them. They're used quite frequently in horror TV series and movies, and I can see why. They're creepy, aren't they? Especially ones with spinning plastic ballerinas. There's something luring under that sweet and innocent surface, I'm sure. The song I'm going to play to you sounds as if it came straight from a music box. It starts ever so innocently, but after a while it grows on you. This piece appears in the Italian movie Suspiria from 1977. It was written by Goblin, which is an Italian rock band, in cooperation with the director Dario Argento. If you haven't seen this film, I recommend you to do it, even if you're normal or not particularly interested in the horror genre. The plot is forgettable. It's about a girl that arrives at a ballet school that turns out to be controlled by witches. Ooh. But there are two aspects of it that makes it a classic. One is the visuals. This movie has a usage of colors that isn't like anything you've seen before. And the other one is the score. It plays a huge part for the atmosphere. You're now going to hear a little sequence that is repeated throughout the film with some variations. I find it hypnotic and disturbing, especially with the whispering voices that you hear in the background. It's a song that gets my imagination going. I don't need to see the scary images painted for me on the screen. I make them up in my own head as I listen to it. Yeah.
this is Gary from Cinema Subculture and I'm going to select from the 1977 film Suspiria by Dario Argento, the main theme composed by Goblin. This was the second time that the band had worked with Argento with the previous from Deep Red two years earlier and notably also on Tenebrae. So the band have contributed music to three of Argento's best works. Um, personally I'm not even that big of an Argento fan but I think the collaboration is quite striking and as far as the history of horror music goes this is one of the probably well-loved and successful collaborations. I think there's a kind of theatricality to Goblin's music which works well with uh, Argento's own theatrical stylings. Um, I think music's also important as it was coming out in the mid-70s so the emergence of synth rock and use of synthesizers which would eventually go on to dominate and become sort of a horror music cliche when during the 80s synths became more affordable consumer instrument. You know John Carpenter talks about being influenced by Goblin and uh, composing his theme for Halloween which in turn obviously became a massively influential horror movie score.
Conte, the man who brought you Dr. Zhivago, comes a totally new motion picture experience. A journey into the bizarre, terrifying world of the psychosexual mind. Torso, it saturates the screen with terror. This is David Cummings, producer and host of the No Sleep Podcast. Our show is an anthology series of original horror stories, and one of my roles is to compose the musical soundtracks for the stories. My favorite horror movie soundtrack is the main theme of the 1979 version of the Amityville Horror, composed by Lalo Schifferin. This film came out when I was 14 years old, and having already read the book the movie was based on, I remember sitting in the theater on pins and needles waiting for the film to start. I was primed and ready to be terrified. And then the music started. But instead of some booming dark chords, it begins with a light piano playing. Then, in one of the most jarring juxtapositions in horror music history, we hear young girls playfully chanting their la-las, those semitone drops that seem to be the polar opposite of the iconic theme to Jaws. It then swells into the darker tones we expect, but to this day, the sound of those young girls singing those ominous notes sends shivers down my spine. It's a theme I've borrowed, stolen, and paid homage to in many of my own compositions. When you know there is unspeakable horror about to be thrust upon you, there is nothing more intense than hearing children lightly singing you into the abyss. Film Jive friends, this is James Gillum from High and Lowbrow Podcast, courtesy of WhereTheLongTailEnds.com. And the track I've chosen is Roger Bartlett's Fool for a Blonde, featured in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the song that, that is playing on the radio when Sally and Franklin and their friends pick up the hitchhiker early on in the film, who turns out to be the younger brother of Leatherface. I chose it because I will never forget the song. It's sort of quietly haunting in the background, and the juxtaposition of the hand-cutting scene and just the weirdness of that whole scene with the hitchhiker, along with this kind of simple ditty about a man who loves to watch blondes walk by while he's drinking coffee, will always be in my head when I think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
every day in a sidewalk cafe, drinking coffee, watching women walking by. The color of their hair, not the reason that I stare, but I always was a fool for a blind. Film Jive, this is Jim Laskowski, currently dealing with shingles and a hiatus from my Director's Club podcast. Well, my choice for your horror movie score episode is a track called The Visitor from a fairly mediocre sequel with one of my all-time favorite scores. It's by a guy named Jerry Goldsmith. You might have heard of him. 
Poltergeist 2 is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, especially after rewatching it, I believe, a year or two ago. But seeing it as a pre-adolescent, um, it terrified me to no end. I was traumatized by several key sequences, particularly one where Craig T. Nelson vomits up a tequila worm zombie out of his mouth. This is one of the more memorable horror movie scores for me, probably because of the indelible impression it made as a youth. It contains this really eerie sound that I can't describe. It appears at about the 227 mark of this track. It's like a... Like a cat in outer space. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just like a weird sound. That was also utilized in a creepy opening credit sequence for the Twilight Zone series rebooted in the 1980s. There's something about that sound that really unnerves me, and I can't describe why. And also about the 340 mark of this track is uh, when hallucinations are sort of given life through audio, kind of taking on the sound of a creepy carnival or something. I don't know how else to describe it, but then... Suddenly we go back to that eerie, sparse ambience that I'm, I'm pretty amazed by the entire score, but this track mainly because it highlights one of the best moments of Poltergeist 2 with the arrival of uh, Preacher Henry Kane, whose mantra of let me in still gives me the creeps. I will attest to the fact that this is an inferior sequel and the movie's conclusion is absolutely horrifically bad and it's a disappointment because i think everything else that comes before it kind of freaks me out and you know watching it recently i laughed a little bit but i was still scared just knowing how this imagery affected me way back when and obviously despite having all-time favorite scores like halloween and suspiria very few can still really get to me like poltergeist 2 and uh, jerry goldsmith's work here is obviously very 80s but still is one of my all-time favorites, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it with you and the listeners. So yeah, if I ever were to compose a horror movie score, which is still one of my lifetime goals, I would uh, definitely take a hint from a track like The Visitor here. Thanks, Zach, for your incredible podcast as always, and happy Halloween!
Hi everyone, my name is Amy Andrews and I'm the owner and writer of OhThatFilmBlog.com, the ramblings of a self-confessed cinema addict. There were literally hundreds of brilliant horror scores to consider when picking my favourite, but the track I've chosen is the title theme from John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. A film copied a million times over, but in my opinion never bettered, Halloween stars debutante screen queen Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, a teenage babysitter whose community and friendship group are terrorised one Hallow's Eve by the return of the psychopathic mask-wearing killer Michael Myers. The film is described as being one of the defining horror films in the slasher genre and is also credited with being one of the earliest horror movies to display the final girl trope that became so prominent in the genre in the 70s and 80s. The track was both composed and performed by the film's creator, John Carpenter. With the exception of A Strong Fear of the Ocean and Jaws, the character of Michael Myers was the scariest horror villain I experienced as a child, and Carpenter really taps into the danger of Michael without having to rely on huge crescendos or jumpy musical cuts. The repetitive, calculated rhythm of the keyboard strokes perfectly mirrors the mannerisms of Myers, and the track has a certain distant quality that is replicated on screen by the numerous wide shots of him just visible in the distance, carefully watching and planning his next attack. In a way, the score really is a musical representation of the silent killer. It is incessant and threatening and begins to creep up on you without you realising, and the perceivably calm beginning quickly turns into a frenzy of panic and claustrophobia. Though the reputation of the Halloween franchise has been diluted over the years with a handful of below-par sequels and prequels, the status and impact of the original still holds firm, and the score has achieved that rare feat of becoming a standalone entry in the world of cinema and pop culture. So here it is, the title theme from John Carpenter's Halloween. for the most frightening experience of your life. They came from within. 
a motion picture that takes you beyond your wildest nightmares. They came from within. What are they? Raging demons that must be exercised? Bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed? Or incarnations of absolute evil? They possess men, women, and children and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. No power on earth can stop them. The only escape is death. They came from within. If this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist. Quick. They came from within. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Hey everybody, this is Chris Vanderkay. Uh, my wife Kathy and I are the authors of The Anatomy of Fear, the horror film interview book. Uh, we also write a bloody good horror. But if you want to find us, you can go to our blog at inthemargin.net. The song that we chose as an iconic horror song is ironically not a song written for a horror film, but it was one that was used very effectively in two different film franchises. And that song is Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, although it has been covered by Pete Yorn and the Arctic Monkeys as well. Uh, but we chose it because of its appearance in the two different franchises. The first one we're going to cover is Hellboy. Obvious choice because of Hellboy's appearance. It's kind of a no-brainer. But uh, the bigger feature is in the original Scream trilogy. It was actually in the first three films, and it is sort of the unofficial theme song of the movie. And uh, the reason that we chose it is because uh, not only is it a great spooky song, but it, it uses chimes in the instrumentation, which gives the sense of sort of clock tower bells warning everyone, like in an old western. Um, it reminds us a little bit of the film The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And even in the first Scream film, the song plays while the townspeople uh, are locking up their stores and heading to the safety of their homes. And, um, of course, it doesn't hurt that the title of the song comes from Paradise Lost, which is the ultimate good versus evil story, so we felt like it was a fitting choice. Hope you enjoy it.
sense of dread that is to come. Playing over serene images of nature as a lone car travels along primarily deserted roads, the score immediately draws us in to the sense of paranoia and madness that often comes from isolating oneself for too long. The film is one of my favorite horror films of all time, and the score is one of the primary reasons for it. So if you're looking to set the eerie tone this Halloween, or maybe you just want to freak out one of your friends, you cannot go wrong with the main title from The Shining. That score is fantastic. Cheers. Thank you. 
This is Gabe Powers from dvdactive.com, and I also sometimes write for and collaborate with the Directors Club podcast. I chose Fabio Frizzi's Irierta di Suani from Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead, which is sometimes also known as The Gates of Hell. Frizzi is best known for his work with Fulci. Their first collaboration was on Fulci's first spaghetti western, Four of the Apocalypse, in 1975 and they continued working together throughout the 1970s on a number of other westerns, comedies, and one of the director's better giallo films, The Psychic. Freezy and Fulci were pushed to the forefront of horror with Zombie, sometimes called Zombie Flesh Eaters and Zombie 2, which would lead into a loose trilogy of soundtracks that included City of the Living Dead and The Beyond, also sometimes known as The Seven Doors to Death. The complexity of Freezy's scores grew with each film, Zombies music was especially primitive, produced using only keyboards and drum machines, while the beyond was complex, including orchestral arrangements and a full chorus. But I prefer the in-between qualities of City of the Living Dead. Erieta di Suani, which literally translates to unreality of sounds, has the simplistic repetition of the zombie soundtrack, but adds instrumental layers as it progresses. The already creepy, basic acoustic guitar melody is met by a hollow piano's counter-melody, which creates a skin-crawling dissonance. After a number of bars, the music switches keys. The piano is replaced by a mournful flute and a moaning electronic chorus. Beneath that is a drum and bass rhythm section, which gives the song an uneasy pop sensation, not unlike Goblin's collaborations with Dario Argento around the same time. Also notice the wet click-clack sound, not unlike a tongue clucking. I'm not sure what this sound actually is. Like many Italian horror cues, Irieta di Suani can be repeated indefinitely and can be applied to any point in a given film, rather than being tied to a single sequence. This makes it invaluably versatile. Parts of the track would later be reworked and reused in The Beyond as a major creepy cue, usually tied to the ghost of Emily. Thanks for listening, and seek out Fabio Frizzi's other soundtracks if you can find them.
I'm uh, I'm Andy here from Film Jive and Stephen Amy Batman, and I am uh, contributing my selection for the the Halloween music special. Zach obviously asked me; it'd be weird if he didn't. And you may not know this, but he's here right now. Hi. <laughs> very very uh, very ghost-like, Ooh, spooky. And uh, you know, he's like, oh, think of like think of like the music from a horror movie that you really like, and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was thinking about it, and I was really thinking about it. I'm like, there's a lot of really, uh, really great music that you can pick from various horror films. Oh, you know, I love the music from Texas Chainsaw Master. I think that's really neat music, and I like the music from Evil Dead 2. I think that's fun. Whenever I think of Dracula, the old one from uh, 1931, I always think of Swan Lake. You know, I love John Carpenter. I should try to think of music associated with John Carpenter, since all of his movies have great music. Even the thing, and he didn't do the music for it. Marconi did. So you start thinking about it, and I and I just started thinking like, it's Halloween, Halloween. And I was like, ah, oh, yes, the Silver Shamrock jingle from Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. One, that movie's really underrated. It's a lot of fun. That movie's a lot of fun. It's really good, and I think more people should see it. So that's one reason, and it's just a, like a really catchy jingle. And you know, I think if you listen to the theme song to Big Trouble in Little China that uh, he did. And listen to that. You can see like how they're how they're related. You can't actually. It just reminds me of early early Carpenter. Even though he didn't direct it, he produced it. He did the music for that movie as well. And uh, so yeah, the Silver Shamrock jingle from Halloween Three: Season of the Witch is my music selection. Ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy after Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy after Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Happy after Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy after Halloween, Silver Shamrock.